caught, uh, caught that in the video there. But uh, in the world of hackers, computer hackers, everybody know what a computer hacker is, right? Okay, somebody who hacks computers. You might know more famously uh, Anonymous. Uh, you may have heard of them, the people with the weird white mask and the, you know, sort of the, the weird beard or whatever. But in the world of computer hackers, there's actually iconic language used to describe different types of hackers. And uh, they come out of spaghetti westerns, uh, as you could tell from the video. The, within the world of hackers, there are those who hack computers for their own selfish gain, you know, either financial or, or power or what have you. There are those who hack for good, and they go in and they hack systems to try and protect from other hackers or try to make sure that, that laws or systems are, are protected from hacking. And then there are those that are sort of, we're not really sure what side they're on. They just, they hack and they hack and they keep hacking and, and we, we wonder, you know, was that a hack for good? Was that a hack? And, and so there's iconic language for each of those. So the ones who, who hack for selfish or, or financial reasons or what have you, they're called black hats. And the ones who hack for good, they're called white hats. And the ones who we're not really sure what side they're on, they're called gray hats. And if you could tell from the, from the video that the spaghetti westerns, you know, in, in the old western movies, they would have the bad guys always wear black hats. And the sheriff and everybody who's on the sheriff's side, they wear the white hats. And then all the rest of the townspeople that at any moment in the movie or the story, they could be on either side. You really don't know. They, they wear what hat? The gray hat. And if you notice with this guy, I don't know if you caught it, but as he's helping her cross the street, what's he do? Anybody catch it? He stole her purse. Yeah. So if you look carefully, you have to catch this next week. But as he's, as he's holding traffic, he's letting her pass by, he snags her purse. <laughs> she doesn't know. She's walking along without a purse. So, uh, you know, this morning you may say, well, Nate, that's great. Thanks so much for the uh, crash course in computer hacking iconology. Uh, and that's, it's wonderful. But uh, what does that have to do with us today? Well, Gilbert has just finished one of the best series I have ever heard in regard to Revelation. I don't say that lightly. Um, I've been around quite a while, and I've heard all kinds of different uh, messages on Revelation. And, and, and if you've tuned in any TV preacher, I'm sure you've heard your fill of them as well. But Gilbert has done a phenomenal job. And coming out of, of, of the last week, there was a couple things that he said about the, the way that the, the, the beast, so remember what the beast represented? Oh, oh, we've forgotten already. Oh, it's the best series of Revelation we don't remember. Oh, go back and listen to the podcast. We won't tell Gilbert, we'll delete that from the thing. So. No, but remember, remember as we went through it, he said, you know, that when we look at Revelation, the, the code language that John was using, that the beast represented the governments, right? Governments under the influence of, of Satan, and the, the, uh, the, the, then there was the, the false religions, um, and those were working together, and he would use famous people and false religions and governments. It was the, kind of the unholy trinity. Remember that? Everybody, okay, so we're, okay, we're good back together there. Well, he says in there about contending for people. You remember, remember he said, you know, that we have to, we have to, until that time comes when we have no more time left, we need to fight to make sure that, that those people who have been, who bought into the false government, false religion, or celebrities, messages, 
that they, they get their eyes open, they can see the truth and begin to evaluate for themselves. So coming out of that, wanted to take just two weeks and really challenge us out of God's word um, with, with what it, what, how we're living in the body. You know, what do we look like as if we call ourselves Christians or if we're just exploring with religion or faith or whatever? What, what does it really look like and how are we living here in America? So the, the iconic hats there, I think, are, are set sort of a stage or a grid, if you will, for us to self-evaluate. So this week is going to be just self-evaluation. So a look in the mirror, if you will. We're going to use Psalm 1 and give you an opportunity to kind of say, all right, if I'm honest, which hat? do I wear? And you can do it on whatever scale you want. Which hat do I wear most? Do I sometimes wear the white hat? Do I sometimes wear the black hat? Do I sometimes gray? Whatever grid you want to put it through, I'm going to trust God to convict you on whatever hat you're seeing. But really, this is just a look to say, what hat do we wear? So if, uh, if, you, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead to go to Psalm 1. If you have the Bible app on your phone or a mobile device, go to Psalm 1. Uh, we're all going to Psalm 1, so... Uh, go ahead and get there. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we will have it up on the screen for you. And uh, just as a reminder, if, if you need a Bible, please stop by our welcome area before you go today. We'd love to give you a Bible so that you have it in your hand and you can, you can not tear it up in the sense of tearing it up, but tear it up in the sense of reading and taking it in. Psalm 1, six simple verses that are going to help us decide what happened. And as we go into this, I want to just challenge you to be brave. Be brave as we go through this because it does take courage to look at yourself and say, what am I really? What do I really believe? And it does take courage to let ourselves be challenged in our assumptions about ourselves. I found that most people over time, we, we tend to believe that no matter what we're doing, we still wear a white hat. So that's why this is so important for us to really just be honest with ourselves today and allow the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts because uh, I'll, I'll I'm with you. Even, even when I do something that I know is wrong, there's still a part of me that's like, well, I'm, wearing, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm wearing the white hat. And that may not be accurate. So let's look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate both day and night. It will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Six simple verses paints a pretty clear picture, don't you think? It's pretty, pretty simple, pretty straight and to the point. And essentially what we're encountering here as the psalmist is writing is God's perspective on which hat he sees us wearing. Do you notice God doesn't seem to really deal with a gray hat, does he? It mostly seems pretty black and white. 
We'll dig a little bit more into the actual, you know, how do we handle the gray thing next week. But for now, when you look at this, you can see that, that God doesn't see a whole lot of gray. But the first thing we encounter there in verses 1 and 2 is a comparison. It seems like we have a mover and a meditator, right? We've got somebody who's a shucker and jiver. They're out there living. They're doing whatever. And there's somebody who's a bookworm, right? They're just sitting around reading all the time. And it seems like the adventurer versus the bookworm, there's kind of like a, yeah, really? Is, you're you're going to say that? But that's not quite what we see. If we look closer, what do we see happening to the person who's supposedly on the move, who's supposedly on this path? They go from walking to what? Look at it again. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. There's a rush that we experience when we initially cross a line or a boundary, right? When we feel like we're getting away from something, away with something. Gilbert says it this way, you know, if you're, if you're not enjoying your sin, you're probably doing it wrong because sin is fun, right? Yeah, we've heard him say that. It's true. There's, there's somewhat of a rush, and it sort of draws us into this path. It draws us in, and we, we, we enjoy the rush of getting away with something, and that feeling like, ooh, that felt really good. Let's, well, how can I do that again? And, and, and maybe not get in trouble. But it lures us deeper, and it, and it becomes a part of our experience, and, we, and then we begin to want it to be a part of our experience. And so we go from rabbit trailing down this this path of, of you know, what, what Psalm 1 says is wickedness. It's, it's something apart from God. It's something that is an experience we were never intended to really enjoy. And, and, and we start to stand in it. And we go from walking in that path to standing in that path. And when you go from walking, you're still movable, right? Once you stand, what happens? You're stopped. And we know, we know from physics, we know from uh, you know, just basic laws of nature that once an object is not, no longer in motion, it tends to what? Stay. An object in motion stays in motion. An object that is not in motion tends to stay still. So the psalmist is giving us a progression that we play around, we run down this rabbit trail, we get lured in, and then we start to stay there. And then after we've stayed there for a while, we stand in this broken habit. We stand in this indulgence, in this rebelliousness, and, and we, it, it, it becomes so much of a part of our experience that now we begin to say, it's good, and we begin to defend it, and we sit down in it. And when we sit down in it, that's the moment when we stop being willing to consider anything else. And in fact, we begin to challenge, attack, mock, or make fun of those who would try to help us see otherwise. Is this fair? I mean, is the psalmist in left field somewhere, or is this the human experience? That once we become convinced of something, and we sit down in it, and we are resolute that this is okay, we're going to attack anybody who challenged it. Why? Because we're comfortable in it. We don't want to let go of it. We don't know what life would be like without it anymore. And so it's too dangerous. It's too scary to let go. So now it's easier to simply defend ourselves or even attack so that we never have to defend ourselves. Does this make sense so far? We on it? 
So the psalmist is saying to us that, 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 that there's not a blessing in this, that this progression of walking in what is apart from God draws us to a place where we sit separate from God and we defend ourselves from anything to do with God. So it's not a comparison of somebody who's on the move. It's just two people who are standing in two different places. The psalmist just chooses to give you a little bit of insight into how the first person got where they were going. The other person, uh, well, before I go there, this is that progression of a gray hat becoming black. So think about that for just a moment. It's a progression of a gray hat becoming black. There is no multi-direction here. There's only one direction. That once we begin to meddle in the gray, we don't suddenly wake up and realize, oh, well, here's how we go towards it. Once we begin to meddle in the gray, we get drawn deeper and deeper until we sit down in it and we become a black hat. God doesn't seem to see the gray hat as something we can take on or put on and take off. It's a hook. It draws us and eventually causes us to turn away from him. But blessed by God is the one who meditates on his word both day and night. And that word meditates is actually kind of a fun word. Because uh, when, you, when you hear meditate, you think, oh, right? Are you thinking, yes, that's, that's hard to do on a stool, just so you know, understand how challenging that really was. You know, this, but um, not to mention my niece. Um, but the, the, he says, blessed is the one who meditates on God's word both day and night. And that word in, in Hebrew, the word for meditate means to mutter under the breath. And so uh, this is not the crazy person on a street corner somewhere where you're just kind of, you know, and I'm not making fun of mental illness, so please, you know, please don't go there. But, you know, this is not somebody who's just caught up in, 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 in repeating back to themselves things because they hear voices. This is somebody who is intentionally, this is like your student. Any of you who have high school students have a big test tomorrow, your college students, you have a big test tomorrow, uh, you're going to work and you got a certification tomorrow, whatever it is, you start repeating like all the things you need to remember under your breath, right? You're just saying, okay, so, and you're repeating it over and over and over again because when you get to the test, you want to what? You want to remember. You want to have that be automatic, that it's second nature, that as soon as you get asked that question, you're able to answer it. And so that's the picture we see here, that blessed is the one who meditates, who mutters under the breath the word of God continuously. Because the Jewish understanding was that you didn't memorize scripture just to be able to parrot it back on demand. Like, okay, so Simon, tell me what Genesis 3, 2 says. You know, and he'd be like, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and he could do that on a cognitive level and have it mean absolutely nothing to him just because he's memorized it. That's not the Jewish understanding of learning the text. When a Jew, and, and the reason I emphasize this is because we got, our, we got the word of God through Israel. We got it. And so it's important for us when we read scripture to understand how that culture would have understood it so that we can bring our culture to it and go, ah, it's a proper understanding. So if I'm emphasizing that and you don't understand why, that's why. But when a Jew would, under, would meditate and try to memorize, the idea was the word becomes so much a part of you that when you encounter daily things, there's no hesitation. You're not like, oh man, I've got this decision. Oh, oh let me get my Bible app and see what the Bible says about. It's none of that. I mean, that's good if that's where you're at, and it's good to pull a Bible out and check that first. I don't know that we always do that. But their mentality was you memorize it so that when that moment comes, it's automatic. You already know what God's word says about that type of a situation or that moral decision, and you instantly are able to position yourself 
where you need to be. Does that make sense? And so when, it, when, he, when the psalmist goes on and says, blessed is the one who meditates or mutters this under their breath continuously both day and night, they will be like a tree planted by living waters. Why? Because they never hesitate. They never have to hesitate. They never have to pull back and be like, I don't know what God says about this. It's there. The nourishment, the life, the, the, the vibrancy of where to stand, where is the good place to be in this situation is already there. It's already a part of them. They're constantly drawing it up into themselves. This is the white hat. The white hat is continuously learning and repeating the word of God, the Bible, in their, in their daily life so that every action they take is in line with God's will. And this brings us to our first question that we need to ask ourselves out of three questions. Our first question is, am I a mutterer or am I a mocker? Am I a mutterer or am I a mocker? Do I live every day passionately seeking God's word to guide me in every moment? Or am I progressing down the path toward the seat of the mockers? That may seem like a simple question, right? It may seem like a, 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 you know, a Sunday school answer. You know, if you ask any kid that's kind of sat in a Sunday school and you say, well, you know, if you want to follow God, what do, you do with, what do you need to do with your life? I need to read the Bible more. And who do you need to follow? Jesus! You know, it, it seems like the really simple answer, right? But it, it's a hard question. If we try to put this where the rubber meets the road on a daily basis, this is a hard question. Am I a mutter? Am I somebody who wants to live out of God's word in every moment? Or am I a mocker? Do I argue to establish that what I'm already doing is okay? And part of the reason that's such a challenge is because our world doesn't play by God's rules, does it? When we go out and we face the world, we try to think about how am I going to live in this world according to God's word, and the world doesn't play along. And so there's a part of us, there's a part of us that says, how can we be that focused? How can we really stand that firmly on God's word? How can we, because we're either going to look like a religious kook or we're just going to be isolated from society and that we won't have access to anything. So in order for me to live, in order for me to survive, I have to compromise somewhere, don't I? Before we answer that question, I want to give you just a few minutes. There's a clip from Ray Vanderlyn. And I want to take you completely out of our context, just for a moment, and take you back to Roman culture. When the early church was beginning to wrestle with what it meant to live in the world, and to live in a world that did not play by God's rules. So just reflect on this for just a moment. Okay, this is a really important part of the city. I'd like to have you follow it with, with your eyes for a moment. This is what is called the Agora. 
And the best way I can think of is to say sort of a cross between a mall and a flea market. Now imagine many long rows of small tents selling every imaginable product that you could get along the trade route here. Everything from spices from India to African wood to local pottery and food, all being sold by hundreds and thousands of individuals, some small farmers, some big merchants, and up here, the permanent shops, the people who own their own stores. Now you know Agora. And here, probably on this seat, or certainly one like it, sat the Agoronimos. Very important man, whose job it was to manage the Agora. When you came to the Agora to bring your products, you had to dedicate them to the god of the Agora. So when you came in with a cartload of pottery, cabbages, or spices, the first thing you would do is roll your cart there by a small altar, take a pinch of incense, drop it on the altar to say, I devote this pottery, these cabbages, these spices to Zeus. So the Agoronimus sat here, and as you entered, he might step up and say, good to see you today. Boy, that's fine pottery. We're so glad you come to our Agora. Your pottery is the best there is. Uh, there's a new altar, stop and sacrifice to Zeus. But I don't believe in Zeus. You don't believe in Zeus? You reject our gods? Then you can't sell your pottery. So all of a sudden, this little community trying to be like Jesus can't be involved in the economics of their world. They can't, in a sense, buy and sell, or at least it became very difficult, and certainly their neighbors looked down on them because they threatened to anger the gods. So you're countercultural. You're not going to change this world by engaging it in its own institutions because you can't even be involved. You've decided to follow a different teacher, rabbi, messiah. Is that shocking to anybody? Most of us live and have lived in a world where we've felt like we have access to the politic, to the powers that be, that we have some sort of a voice. And even if we feel like we haven't had much of a voice in our culture, we understand that there are ways and there are people who do and people that we can get access to. But imagine being in a place where just because you will not worship the gods of that culture, you are completely cut off from any ability to influence I share that with you not to be frustrating, but because I see that this is where we're going in America. We have lived very comfortably in a nation that was established on Christian values. It was established on biblical values, and the culture is moving in the other direction. And the tendency is to become fearful, protective, dare I say, even to sit in the seat of mockers. Hear me on this. 
that when we become threatened because we don't have the power and the access that we want, we take it into our own hands. And the minute we do that, the minute we do that, we're on a very different path. Because no matter what happens in our government and our access to government, God's still in control, right? And some of you are going to nod because we're in church and like that's the way you're supposed to say, you know, like we're supposed to answer. Well, you know, the pastor said God's in control, so he must be. You know, but, but we recognize inside of ourselves that we doubt that, don't we? We wrestle with that. But in Psalm 1, the psalmist is already in a place, already in a place like this, where the, the culture, the broader culture doesn't care about the God above all gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. They, they don't care. They have their gods. And you're just whatever you are. You believe in one God. How poor you must be to only have one God. This was the mentality of the world that they lived in. And so when we think about becoming or being a follower of Jesus and being a white hat, so to speak, in this world, it is very difficult because we begin to say, the culture won't accept it. I'll be isolated. How will I make a living? How will I? But the early church, their concern wasn't about their livelihood. Their concern wasn't about their comfort. It wasn't about their political power. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't even about being normal. It wasn't their concern. Their concern was to be faithful because they knew that no amount of being normal, no amount of being famous, no amount of being recognized or having power or influence or anything like that was worth the little pinch of incense over the, the altar to Zeus. That even if they knew Zeus was not real and Zeus did not exist and it was just a pinch of incense, it wasn't worth it because the very act of doing it validated what the culture believed, even if they didn't. And at that moment, you're participating in honoring a false god. You see how quickly we can fade to gray. I've got to sell my pottery. I've got to sell whatever it is I have. How am I going to get food for my kids? The early church did not struggle with that in the same way that we do. Because for them, it was not worth it. Now, I'm sure individuals did. I'm sure it was very challenging for someone to leave that culture and become a God follower. But once that decision was made, that was it. So it brings us to our second question out of the psalm. Am I thriving or am I gliding? Am I thriving or am I gliding? When God inspired the writer of the psalm, notice his promise for provision for those who will follow him, for those who mutter under the breath, who, who live their life according to God's word. He promises provision to provide what they need. He promises endurance. He promises protection and productivity. He uses a vivid picture of a tree planted by living waters. And living waters are like a spring. You know, they're just constantly flowing. They're always bringing fresh nutrients, fresh. It's not stagnant water. A, pod, a puddle, that's dead water. That's not living water. Living water is a spring. It's always bringing fresh nutrients to the plants around it. So the tree is planted by living water. It's rooted and it's established in the soil around this living water. It's producing its fruit 
continuously. Enduring hard times and heat and drought and pressure and stress and pests, all of it. Because it's able to draw life from the water and from the soil. And the psalmist has an equally vivid picture of those who are on the path to the mocker. One sentence, not a whole lot of words. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Anybody here roast coffee? Anybody roast your own coffee in a popcorn maker? All right, I, I know I'm weird, but um, uh, you ever, you ever, uh, anybody crush wheat? Yeah, yeah, because you're all farmers, right? Um, so, but you, but you, you get the understanding on the outer casing of certain grains. The outer casing. If, if you ever want to have fun, get a popcorn maker, 1,500 watts or better, and roast some, <laughs> roast some coffee beans in there. You need a three-inch uh, pipe to get the height, but you know I can talk to you afterwards if you want the specs. <laughs> but when you roast the coffee beans. There's a chaff that comes off the outer, like as the bean roasts and it, it shrivels up, the outer shell kind of comes off and you have this chaff blowing around. I mean, my wife will tell you I have to blow my garage out because every now and then I'm like, so I got chaff all over the place. But this, this chaff, I mean, all it takes is a breeze passing by my garage door and it will actually suck the chaff out. It's amazing. It's so light. It's just, it's like tissue paper almost. And that's the way the psalmist describes those who are on the path of the wicked. Why? Because it seems like in our world, the wicked are so powerful. It seems like those who have an agenda apart from God have so much strength that they're rooted in so much power in this world. And the psalmist says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's no substance to it. There's nothing. There's nothing of eternal value. There's nothing of lasting value. It will pass. It will pass because it's just air. It's just empty. When the psalmist uses the word for wind, it says the chaff that the wind blows away, the Hebrew word for wind is ruach. And it not only means wind as in the wind that we, you know, you know, that we have here in the planet, but it also means spirit. And whenever the Bible talks about God's spirit, it uses the words ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit. Well, this wind, I mean, it's the same word. It's the same word. Now, it doesn't say it's the Holy Spirit, but the psalmist clearly implies there's no lasting value. That as God moves towards what is good, all of this stuff that we see that just seems so powerful and so unmovable, as God moves towards something good, he's going to blow it away. It'll pass. If you define your existence currently as more surviving than thriving, then, ask, then keep asking yourself this question. Am I thriving or gliding? If, am I surviving more than thriving? It's perhaps time to take a look at where you stand and what hat you're wearing, what you are basing your life on. The principles that you say you believe and you are living and making decisions out of. Because if there is no guiding purpose for your life and your talents and your skills and abilities, or that purpose is only a selfish principle or, or some, something where you're wired into, some, you're going to gain something from it. 
or if it's a principle that maybe God has taught specifically against, take caution because the path you are on is a house of cards. One stiff wind. One move of God toward what is good and it can be wiped away. Many of us who are following Jesus with our lives right now, we can tell you, before we met Jesus, there were a lot of things we thought were really settled in our life. There were a lot of things we felt very firmly and we believed very strongly. And when we encountered God for the first time, took our breath away with who he is, how powerful he really is. And that the strength that we perceive in the wicked, the strength that we perceive in this world is an illusion. It's actually a product of God's grace allowing us to sort things out. Do you follow that? The only reason those things are allowed to endure is to give us time and the perspective to learn and to see him for who he is. Ultimately, without the Spirit of God, we wouldn't be drawing breath right now. We wouldn't. If God suddenly decided to pull His Holy Spirit out of the world, there would be nothing. Nothing would be alive. Do we understand that? I don't know that, like that, that was, for me, as an early believer, that was a huge shift of thinking because like I just thought, well, hey, we're all just here and God just happens to interact whenever we... I mean, the idea that without the Spirit of God intentionally giving life and sustaining life on this planet, we wouldn't be here. And the psalmist reminds us of that, that just one breath. When we have these things built on things apart from God, they can just be blown away. But what if we think we're doing good? I mean, what if we, okay, so I'm surviving, but what if I think I'm doing good? What if I think I'm trying hard? What if, what if because the culture says this is good and I'm joining the culture in something it's good because I'm not a bounded set person, I'm a centered set, like we, we agree on something that this is good and we should push together on it, that's good. And, and, and so what if I'm in that place and, and how, do I, how do I handle this? What if we're just joining the Facebook frenzy and the Twitter frenzy because, you know, somebody said something and lit up this passionate discussion and we're, and, we're, and we're just trying to make sure that people can hear and think about what we believe. What if we think the Bible is just a little old-fashioned? You know, that the, the Bible doesn't really speak to every issue today, so we, we, we want to help people just be happy with their life and happy with what they have. So we want to validate people. We want to love, because isn't God loving? Wouldn't God love people enough to do that? Is that thriving on the principles of God's word, or is that surviving? I'm not going to answer that one for you. You have to wrestle through that one. But it brings us to our third question. As we look at what hat we're wearing, are we delighted? Am I delighted or am I destroyed? And initially, you know, it might seem really easy to answer that one. Like, am I destroyed? Of course I'm not destroyed. I'm sitting here this morning. Don't think of it in terms of like, am I currently destroyed? But think of it in terms of, are the things that I'm doing going to have a sustaining, you know, eternal outcome? Am I really putting my life into things that are going to have a lasting impact? Don't get that confused with legacy, because if you get that confused with the impact you make and your legacy, then that's just pride, okay? And I'm just going to put that out there. If you want to talk about it over coffee some other time, we can do that. 
But, you know, your legacy doesn't matter squat. God's legacy matters. Okay? I just put it out there. There's a lot of talk in our culture. There's a lot of talk even in the church. I've, you know, I have colleagues and pastors say, it's all about legacy. And, you know, we would, we, I mean, we, you put us in a room sometime and you just, you'll have fun, you know, watching the two of us go around. Because this legacy thing is still about us. My legacy, our legacy. Anyway, all right, we'll move on from that. So am I delighted or am I destroyed? Destro- think of destroyed in the terms of, you know, is this going to have lasting value? The psalmist says in, in, the, in the following verses there, four through six, that the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment before God. They will not be able to stand in the crowd of those who have followed God with their life. If we're studying God's word and if we're content that he owes us nothing, Ooh, that's challenging. Are we content that God owes us nothing? I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, but I just want to plant that seed. Because the psalmist is coming from this perspective that that God owes us nothing. He's given us life. Even that's a gift. Are we content that he owes us nothing and that he does really know best? Then we'll be delighted in him and by him. Because he'll be the only one who's given life. He's the only one that matters. We'll be delighted by his promises. We'll be delighted by his presence. Even when we're in desperately difficult times, his presence, his promises, his word will be enough to sustain us. No matter how bad it gets. You want a great perspective on on who lived that way? Go read the book of Job. Spelled like Job, pronounced Job. Here's a guy. I mean, here's a guy that in the midst of losing everything knew what it was to delight in the promises of God. Will we be delighted for the grace that placed us in his care and delighted to consider whatever we have that we can share? And I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, Dr. Seuss there, but that's, it, it does work, you know. Will we be delighted no matter how desperate or fierce the challenges? His presence will satisfy us. And comfort us more than any rights or any recognition we may seek. If we find ourselves discontent or frustrated with God, if we feel like we're just not making progress, we find ourselves tempted to redefine the words of the Bible or the moral principles of God to try and bring some comfort or validation or, or, quote, modernize our faith, we will eventually find ourselves more reactive and closer and closer to the mocker's seat. Again, I'm not going to go down that one too much, but think of yourself, you know, think of how you respond to situations. That the harder you press into trying to make everybody happy, the harder you try to make all of these principles that the world keeps telling us are good work together, the more reactive, And maybe you've been able to personally manage it pretty well, but look around you. I mean, good grief. I don't know if you're on Facebook or not, but look at the the feeds. It's reactive. We We don't discuss. We don't learn from one another. We don't grow together. We don't challenge each other with ideas and go towards something good. We're just in seats of mockers fighting back and forth and back and forth for what we think is right. This is not what God has called us to. And I am embarrassed when I see the church behaving that way. 
I'm embarrassed when I catch myself behaving that way. That's not delighted. That's destroyed. If we're marching for causes, and, 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 and I'm going to go down this path, so hang with me. This is not political in nature. Okay? If you feel it is, we can talk. Just hear me on this. If we are marching for causes and demanding rights that we've never been promised by God, and we're compartmentalizing, you know what I mean, <laughs> siloing, suddenly I'm Elmer Fudd. Some of you don't know who that is. I just dated myself again. But if we're compartmentalizing ourselves and labeling ourselves into to species and, and preferences and races, and, and we're, we're putting ourselves in all these boxes and then contending for these individual, individual boxes, are we following the way that God has called us to be one and unified? Are we? We risk traveling down the path of the wicked. We risk thinking we're bringing life and bringing good thinking we're bringing social justice. If we trample the authority and disrespect the position of others because we disagree with their perspective, we're standing in a sinful place of our own pride and judgment. Do we understand that? Whenever we pursue human rights in human effort with human standards, we worship the idol of rights and just start picking fights. And as we look at our Facebook feeds, as we look at our Twitter feeds, as we interact on the street, as we have these reactive dialogues over and over and over again, and we're not discussing, and we're not learning, and we're not growing together as one people, what we are doing is we are watching, and we are learning, and we are being entertained by the art of mockery. Do we understand? Let me bring this home a bit more. The Bible says we are to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to provide for the poor and the needy, to care for the widow and the orphan. The Bible says my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Not my riches, not my neighbor's riches, his riches and glory. It doesn't say that Trump supplies my needs. It doesn't say Obama supplies my needs. It doesn't say the government or my employer or welfare or, or Meals on Wheels or my affordable health care or my, my rich neighbor up the street or my lottery ticket. None of it is in the Bible. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And if he is supplying my needs, he always supplies more than what I need so that I can supply the needs of those around me. So that none of these institutions would be necessary. Is it good to centralize resources? Is it good to help and, and kind of pull our resources together and help? Absolutely. But when that becomes an end in of itself, when that becomes the way that we abdicate our responsibility and put it off on somebody else's shoulders, or we just pay our few dollars into it and say, that's it, I've done my part, we are off track. And we want to fight and argue over these things.
my God shall supply them. And the promise here in Psalm 1 is that if we're delighted in him and in his word, then we shall be planted by life-giving streams. We will be thriving. We will have enough to share. And that God will prepare for those who we're going to share with. Listen, the power of the early church when they were cut off from the culture and they had no access, the power of the early church wasn't because they wore down Caesar and they debated the philosophers until they convinced them all that they had to believe exactly the way they did and then they got power enough to pass all these laws to make the government and to make Rome pay for everybody. That was not the process the early church went through. They had no access. And yet, they thrived. Some of the Roman Charities that existed through the temples that they had to these false gods were way better than any any welfare program we have in America. They were incredible. Because every God promised eternal life in Rome. Every God promised that they would provide for you and care for you. So in the cities, there were systems built to do that. The early church didn't thrive because they suddenly showed up as the only caring people in the world. They thrived because God sustained the effort. And God used the caring that they had to show who he really is and that these gods were not real. And now look around you today. The temples that once provided all the charity within Rome, they're in ruins. Their gods are no longer worshipped. Why? No eternal value. Nothing and no one to sustain them. We need to do good, but we need to do good from the one who is good and relying on him to be the provider, relying on him to be the one to make this. And the church is still around, are we not? The church in America may may be in decline right now, but the church all over the world is exploding. The church in America, I think, is in decline because there's a part of us that has lost touch with how much God provides. And and I'm I'm going to tell on myself for a minute here. The other night, my my middle daughter has has eczema. And uh, it's allergy-related. And there were were some creams and things that we think made the the, uh, the, the eczema kind of flare up, irritated her skin. And so, you know, it was getting more bumpy all over and I sat there in her room the other night and I laid my hands on the, the, the inner parts of her elbows and uh, I didn't ask her permission to share this so I'll, I'll, I'll ask forgiveness later but uh, she actually fell asleep so she's probably not aware of half of this but um, as I was praying over her and I was praying for God to heal her arms I could feel the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through me. I could feel the warmth of God in my hands. But there was a part of me that was saying, God, do I even know how to do this? How do I do this? Do I even believe you can anymore? And it wasn't a fleeting thought and it wasn't like my faith has been shaken and I don't believe that there's a God. But there's, there was, it, was a, it was a flag for me in that moment to say, where am I in this culture? 
when we have all this science and we have all this information and we have all these political things that, that we just fry our minds on and we come to a moment where God's power is the only power that is needed, do we have the knowledge and the confidence and the relationship with him to sit into that moment and let him And it took me to all the moments that I've, I've, you know, I know I've seen people healed through prayer. And I'm, I'm going, God, why don't we see more of that? Why don't we see more of that? And I'm not talking, you know, cameras and lights and knocking people over on stage. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking laying hands on and saying, Lord Jesus, heal. And someone gets well. The reason I'm sharing that is because I need to admit to you. If I'm honest, at the end of the day, I've become gray. And it wasn't something that I chose to have happen in the sense that I woke up one day and said, well, but I chose to let it happen every single time. I was not relying on God. And I allowed my relationship with him to drift farther and farther away. Do I believe that God supplies all my needs? Do I believe like the early church that I, we can thrive no matter what the circumstance? When I look at how I live, does how I live say more about the hat I'm wearing than I'm willing to admit? I mean, I want to bring us back to our questions. Am I a mutterer or a mocker? Am I thriving or am I gliding? Am I delighted or am I destroyed? The mutterer or mocker, am I trusting God's word for every moment? Or am I defending my perspective no matter what? Am I thriving, rooted in trusting him to share and to provide? Or am I carried along with whatever the latest trend is? Am I delighted? Satisfied in him no matter what? Or is my day ruined every time my expectations aren't met? Or some agenda fails or someone on Facebook offends me? Next week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the gray in, in, in a healthy way to help us say, how do we deal with it? How do we, how do we get out of the gray or, or get the gray out? You know, for some of us, it's starting to be an issue, you know, but it's not that gray. But, the, but how do we get out of the gray or get the gray out? Because in our culture, if we're honest and we look in the mirror, many of us are probably finding ourselves more and more and more gray because it's the only place our culture is willing to accept is safe the only place that's safe and being the creatures we are we seek safety we seek comfort so what do we do with that that's just a question for this week what hat do you wear and next week how do we deal with it if we find ourselves being gray? And if you, know, if you truly believe you're a white hat or you're, you're truly a black hat and you're content to be there, I think there's still going to be value for you in, in next week. But we're going to dig in and how, what do we do with, with the gray? And if you want to read ahead, we're going to be in, in the book of Jude. Uh, it's one chapter, so you can read ahead you know, real, real quick. 
But uh, join us next week as we go into that. I hope that this morning, that God has already poking. I know He's been poking my heart and getting ready, you know, for this message. I hope He's been poking you because there's something that, that as we face it, as we face where we really are, He's going to be working with us next week to start to draw that out and, and help us see the path ahead. Let's pray, Father. We live in a world where gray is safe. The middle ground is safe. Compromise is safe. And it's no different than Rome. For the early church in Rome, compromise was safe. Just go along to get along. God, we, we see in your word that's not who you've called us to be. That's not where your promises for your provision and your sustaining and your life-giving presence. It's not, it's not where it is. It is in standing with you and standing on your promises every day. Lord, help us to, to finish taking this long look in the mirror. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, draw our eyes back at, again and again and again. Even if it's a physical mirror in our bathroom or our, our hallway or wherever it is that, that we're looking at and you would just, you would draw our mind and our heart to the knowledge of what hat we're wearing. See ourselves honestly with all the decisions we've made even in the last week. And Father, we trust your Holy Spirit to, to break our hearts in that. And I pray, God, that as you, as you poke us and as you prod us and as you break our hearts in that, you would draw us into your arms and as a loving Father, you would, you would enfold us, you would embrace us and say, it's okay, I get it, I get it. You're in a tough place. The world is tough. But let me show you what I can do. God, would you restore the wonder to our hearts, the hope and the light to our eyes. And help us to see the way out of the grave and into your wonderful light. For our sakes and for the sakes of anyone around us. We praise you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name.